people need to stop associating accessibility with disability. Think about accessibility more like inclusion. Hello and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us and we've got an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie and today we're talking with Molly Watt, Accessibility and Usability Consultant with Sigma. Welcome Molly. Hi there, thanks for having me. No problem, great to have you on the show. I first heard about you, Molly, when you gave a keynote at Camp Digital a couple of years ago, which I think was called Hear No, See No, Techno. Oh, amazing. Yep. <laughs> How did that come about and what did you talk about on the day? I've been delivering presentations since I was about 15 and a lot of it came about because I have an inherited condition called Usher's syndrome. And a lot of what I talk about is kind of real life experiences that I've had. So I'm registered deaf blind. I was born deaf and went blind quite quickly from the age 12 to 14. Obviously, like the title you just mentioned, don't hear very much, don't see very well. I rely on technology. I'm very fortunate to live in a day and age where there is such technology available. So I'm reliant on it and I talk about the importance of accessibility, inclusion and inclusive design. It kind of progressed from kind of just being little awareness talks. When I was 15, I'd go into schools and I'd talk about how it's okay to be different. I was really quite passionate about the whole anti-bullying thing at school because I know as a child with a disability being in a mainstream school, I always felt really different. I just wanted to be like the rest. And I thought it was just an important message, but also to just raise awareness of Usher syndrome. Because it's one of those conditions that is invisible. If I had a penny for every time someone said to me, oh, but you're not blind, you're looking straight at me, or you don't sound deaf. There's so many stereotypes that still sit around deafness and blindness and disabilities in general. So I started off kind of just really talking about addressing these stereotypes and trying to get people to think differently to then getting to the point where it's now where I consult in it to the right people to build better products and services online. And all of it just connects quite well because I, like I just said, I rely on technology on day to day. So I offer my expertise and often in the form of a keynote presentation, like you just mentioned. So I I deliver a lot of these and kind of in the hope that people will come forward and want to change their services for the better, not necessarily change, but just improve things so that all users can have a fully accessible, inclusive experience. Absolutely. That's a, a fantastic mission. And we're going to get into some of the detail of how you do that and the companies and organizations that you work with and the tips that we might want to take to our own workplaces. Sure. From our research, we learned about how you were going through high school. Obviously, you'd recently become blind as well, but you still managed to get through your GCSEs really well and you went on to college. But from reading some of your blog posts, that didn't sound like the easiest of journeys. Can you say a bit about those experiences and why they weren't necessarily set up for someone with accessibility needs? But I was a guinea pig everywhere throughout my school and all of my teachers were sort of oh we've never had one of those before and it was a real pain because not only was I there wanting to learn it was like I had to educate every teacher about me before I could begin starting to learn that was a real challenge because I think as a child in primary school primary school was really fun and games I was just 
I say just, but I was just a deaf child at that point. And so in terms of what support I needed, I had a, I had my own TA, the teachers wore a microphone, we had very small classes. I developed my speech by the age of six and I was able to sort of be included in many schooling activities, which was great. It wasn't until I got to my early teens when I started going blind that there were more challenges, particularly in the scheme of support. And it actually, I think from my parents' perspective, we were worried because GCSEs were coming and it was sort of, you know, how is Molly going to be able to access her education in order to sort of succeed in life? And the school that I was at was a mainstream school and they had a system that just didn't work for me. I don't know if it works for anybody else, but personally, my experience wasn't great. So they had teaching assistants for each department. So you had your maths, your English, your science teaching assistants. So I had different TAs for each subject. And what that meant was some of them were really great and others were really quite bad. Sometimes I would turn up to class, not be able to access anything on the board. And then the handouts that were handed out were inaccessible because they hadn't been modified. If I had put my hand up and sort of said, oh, miss, you know, can't read this, can please go and enlarge it? Oh, yes, hang on, Molly. And they'd be gone the whole of the lesson, either just blowing it up to A3 paper, which was useless, or they'd be gone all lesson. And they would come back and they'd say, right, Molly, you need to do your schoolwork and your homework at home. So I was immediately kind of excluded from the whole classroom experience because I was never able to actually fully cooperate because I never had the materials on time. Then again, like some lessons I turn up and the handouts were fully modified and already on my desk. It was so inconsistent and such a stress that we we looked to other schools. And actually, all I needed when I say modified was that the handouts just needed to be printed onto buff paper so it wasn't white and too much glare. And for the fonts to be size 18 minimum. So what that would mean is just basically reprint, just enlarging the text on a computer and then reprinting it, but onto buff paper. That's all they needed to do. But that was quite difficult for them. So we looked into specialist schools because we thought, right, okay, probably should look elsewhere. And because it was the early days of my diagnosis, so Usher syndrome came about when I was 12. We didn't really understand it too well ourselves. In hindsight, I was a very naive child, I would say, because I, I just kept saying to my, my friends, oh, I've got an eye condition. I didn't really understand my eye condition. I didn't really understand the, the severity of it. All I knew is that I didn't feel included and I felt a bit different. and I didn't really know why. I was kind of used to being the different child. So we looked into other schools and we looked to see if any other schools had experience of kids with Usher syndrome. One school I looked at and I tried it for a week had a visually impaired unit but it was all girls and I tried it and I really felt I didn't fit in and then I tried a boarding school for the deaf they were a private school private grammar school I had to do an exam to get in and I tried it for a week I remember saying to my parents oh my goodness I actually feel like I fit in and this was because they were all deaf I was deaf and as far as I was concerned I was deaf and just had an eye condition I really felt at the time it was it was the right thing to do. They also were very much, oh, yes, we know all about Usher syndrome, which, of course, is, is the first thing we wanted to hear. But unfortunately, we learned soon after I started that it was more about the money than anything for them wanting me to be there because teachers weren't interested in supporting me. My peers were totally unsupportive. They would constantly sort of taunt me about me pretending to have this condition, that it wasn't as severe as, as I was letting on. And that I didn't really need my cane. When I had my guide dog come along, they really just didn't understand the need for it. I even had the SEN teacher say to me, 
don't really need your dog, do you? It was a real struggle because I was a child that had been registered blind at this point for three years. And I had teachers telling me that I could see, telling me what I could and couldn't access. And it was really quite detrimental to my mental health. Like I really didn't understand what was going on. You know, I would try and ask someone to help me read the board. One situation I had, I put my hand up in science class and they were very small classes because it was school for the deaf and they were all set out in a horseshoe form so everyone could see everyone's face. It was hard enough for me to see teacher's face, let alone the board behind them. And I one day put my hand up and I said, could you please enlarge what you've got on the board there? And it was like a diagram or in biology. And she said, no, don't want to do that. It will ruin the diagram. At this point, I put my head down on the desk and sort of in a strop. And then she told me off. She said, you need to look at me so I know that you're listening. Because, of course, deaf people are very visual. And I said, well, I can't see you anyway. So what's the point? And this is when I started rebelling, I think. I had a friend at the time who defended me in the class and said, look, Molly just wants to be like everybody else in the class. Why can't you just enlarge it so she can read it? And the teacher made a point of saying, well, Molly's not like everybody in the class because she can't read the board like everybody else in the class. I just remember that so well. And I remember just the the anger I felt. And I I wasn't an angry child. I was goody two shoes, you know, in a classroom. And I just got up, threw my papers to the floor and I stormed out and I was crying. This school was about an hour away from home. And I I called my mum and she came and picked me up. You know, I sort of refused to go back. But that all said, you know, I did do my GCSEs there. My maths GCSE paper turned up on A3 paper, which was a real, real shame because everything else had kind of turned up just how it should have. But then my maths paper came on A3 paper. It couldn't fit the desk. The the reason why it's not very helpful is because with retinitis pigmentosa, the, the blindness that I've got, it's lack of peripheral vision. So you have very little field of vision. So what I had and had at that point, five degrees vision in one eye, and it's like looking through a straw. And so if I've got tiny field of vision, massive pieces of paper, like A3 paper, is not going to help me any more than a small piece of A4 with small text. In fact, small text on A4 paper would have been more accessible than A2. Like It, it just totally defeated the object. So that was a real challenge and arguably the reason why I didn't get the grades that I was predicted in maths. I mean, I passed, but I didn't get what I was predicted. And I do feel to this day that that was because they didn't modify the materials how they should have done. And the sad part is they knew exactly how to do it. They knew what I needed, but they weren't bothered about doing that properly for me. Schooling was a real challenge. It really was. And I think it was a mixture of things where I really wanted to fit in with everybody. And I tried so hard. I picked up sign language so that I could communicate with my peers. Because one of the first things they said to me when I first started, year nine, they said to me, you're a sad excuse of a deaf person if you don't know how to sign. They used it against me, the fact that I was oral and didn't know sign language. And so they made me feel like I was less of a person. And I got bullied from day one because of that, because I wasn't like them. And the irony was I wanted to start this school because I actually felt like everybody else for the first time in my life. But obviously, I learned very quickly that I was not like everybody else. It was a harsh reality, actually, I think, that I learned so early on in life. I grew up very quickly. I had lots of adult attention growing up with appointments and speech therapy and all of the rest of it. So I felt that I was kind of mentally really quite advanced compared to my peers. 
the bullying was just not necessary and really, really emotionally distressing and receiving it from teachers as well really, really didn't help. The one thing I think all these years on is, in hindsight, yes, I got my GCSEs, and that's the one thing that I can say I'm pleased that I got. In all honesty, like even just talking about half of the experiences now, you know, I have sweaty palms. Like it's been a long time. It took me a long time to be able to talk about it. You know, the last, the last sort of year and a half, two years was the first time I actually started talking about it publicly, talking about how difficult my schooling experience was, and how, as someone with Usher syndrome had to accept she was going blind, had to accept that she would have to rely on a guide dog and a cane or just have to accept that things were going to get pretty hard. And that was really hard trying to accept because it's the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how much more vision you're going to lose. As someone who comes from a very supportive, optimistic family, all I wanted more than anything was just to be independent and just to be with my friends and be able to go and make memories and all those things which I've been fortunate enough to do now but it took me a long long time you know I had major after my boarding school experience major anxiety and manic depression and it took me a real long time I had a year out of education then at home where I didn't want to leave the house I didn't want to be seen by anybody I didn't want to use my guide dog I really felt like she needed to be handed back because I couldn't do anything because I had a guide dog and it was because that school made me feel that way. It wasn't because that's how it is in life, but it's that's how it made me feel as a person. So it was a real, real challenge. And so this is when I remember really feeling like I had no direction whatsoever in life because I thought, well, I've only got my GCSEs. Like, I can't even do my A-levels. My mum and dad looked around local colleges and they all sort of said, oh, we've not had someone like that before. Because as soon as you say Usher syndrome is a form of deaf blindness, they paint a picture in their head of what that looks like. None of them even gave me a chance. So I really felt that I was going to be rejected by every college and that I was never going to get my A-levels, that I was never going to get to university. And I really felt like it was my turn because I had two older brothers that did that. And so I thought it was my turn. And the fact that it was my turn and I couldn't get that far, I really felt that, well, what hope have I got? You know, I can't even get that far. My mum, bless her, worked really hard to, to find a college that would take me because she really believed in me, was like, no, you are more than capable, this isn't fair, you have a future. And she found a college, it was about half an hour away from home, and she said to me, Molly, I've got a really good feeling about this college. And I said, no, I don't want to go. I didn't want to go and view it because in my mind they were just going to reject me. My mum went along and she spoke with the Senko, and the Senko said, we have never had anybody with us syndrome before. However, we are willing to learn. And it was that very attitude that changed everything, that really, really changed the whole experience for me. Because the first thing he did was he looked at my GCSE results and he said she would get into this college any day of the week. She is more than capable. Bring her in for an interview. This is what we do for every student that applies. I would love to meet her. So this is when, you know, mum brought me in. She built me up and was like, look, Molly, like this college actually want you. This is amazing. And it, it felt really good. And I, what I really loved is that he invited me in for an interview and was talking to me about my academic efforts and just how academic I was and how capable I am. It was about me and my education. It wasn't about Molly having Usher syndrome and, oh, how do we deal with that? So that really did wonders as a 17, 18 year old. I was kind of like, wow, this is great. They see me for me. They accept me for me. They've accepted me through my, my GCSE results. I've earned this. 
I felt really, really good. And it was there after where they said to me, okay, your mum told us you'd like to do English and art. What we would recommend if you're doing English is instead of doing English literature, where you would have to read six books, um, we would recommend you do English literature and language. So it's just three books and then three scripts. So it's not as much reading and it's not as much um, stress on your eyes. And for art, there is an art and design diploma option for you to basically get equivalent to two A-levels. We would be more than happy for you to look around the art department and meet with the teachers and, you know, get whatever you need before you start. They said there and then, if you're decided on those, what we can do is we can literally set up your timetable so that it's spaced out so that you have enough breaks in between, that you have shorter days so that you can rest. Because we're aware you must get really tired having dual sensory impairments. And they were just the most accommodating people ever. Honestly, those two years really restored my faith in humanity. I got my A-levels, I did really well, I was on a high, I had many friends. Everyone from that boarding school were completely cut off, totally just didn't want to associate with any one of those people anymore. And I was really, really happy. It was them that made me feel that I was finally capable enough to go to university. But then the whole applying for university was really inaccessible. I I just couldn't access anything. So I had to rely on my personal assistant at the college to, to help me with that. That was kind of disheartening because I thought, right, you know, I've been on a roll and now I'm trying to do something really responsible and independent and I can't even do that. DSA and all of the extra support, etc. That's that was a real challenge also. I had to rely on my mum to do that because again, everything was just so inaccessible online. Everything that required help, you would have to call a number, which at that point I didn't have hearing aids that were Bluetooth connected to my phone in order for me to do that. So again, I had to rely on my parents. It was really hard work getting into university. And I did at some point sort of think, oh my God, is this going to be a repeat boarding school experience? Like, am I going to really struggle to access this course? Am I going to struggle all over again? I applied to three universities, um, got into three. And I was really, really pleased with myself. I really thought I was just making it in life. (laughs) So university started. I made many friends. I enjoyed Freshers Week like any other student would. Had a lot of fun, a lot of hangovers. (laughs) But what then happened, it was deja vu, basically. I had lots of the lecturers come up to me and say hi to my guide dog and was like, oh, isn't she beautiful? And then they wouldn't give me materials for me to access. So once again, couldn't access the board. I asked them to email them to me ahead of time. They didn't do that. They referred to the intranet, which was totally inaccessible. Even with all my tools to enlarge it, the content just stayed the exact same size. And there was just genuine ignorance as well among the lecturers because the course was a teaching degree. I really fancied being a teacher, a primary school teacher, as I really liked the idea of sort of influencing the next generation and really encouraging inclusivity in the classroom. I was just really passionate about that. However, I had one lecturer say to me, you know, how do you think you're going to be able to teach when you can't see or hear properly then? It was just this constant doubt that they would make little comments like that towards me, which was really quite disheartening. Cherry on the top was the placement. So when it came to placement and finding a placement, disability coordinator said to me, oh, it was a real challenge trying to find you a placement. And this was shortly after that she had announced to everybody else that they'd found placements and they were really pleased that everybody was happy with their placement. Having said that to me, my first thought was, did you have to tell me that? Like, even if that was true, why did you have to tell me that? That wasn't very nice. 
And then she said, oh, yes, found you placement in nursery. Now, this was also an insult to me because I'd applied for Key Stage 2 teaching. And this was because I knew that every child in a class has a desk. I, as a teacher, could arrange the classroom how I'd like and I could navigate around with my blindness with that. However, if I was in Key Stage 1, let alone nursery, kids are likely to be on the floor. I would be in fear, constant fear of trampling all over a child. So I had already thought ahead of this, hence why I was really careful when I chose my degree. And so I said to the disability coordinator, well, that's not really appropriate. She said, well, I've got a meeting with the school. You'll have to come with me and talk to them. So I did. I kind of gave it a chance. Went along, met the lady. She showed me an office down the corridor from the nursery and said, this is where you'll leave your guide dog. That was the first impression. It was, okay, your guide dog is not allowed in the classroom. I was shocked. I was stunned. I said, well, why is this? You know, I've done lots of voluntary work in primary schools. Guide dogs are the least of our worries. Children are actually much better around guide dogs than adults are. If you tell a child you mustn't fuss a guide dog, they're more likely to listen than an adult is. I've had many adults come up to me and say, oh, I know I shouldn't fuss her, but she's so beautiful. I was just really quite disheartened by that and the lack of support I had. I gave up when she said you'll be outdoors a lot with the children doing the gross motor skills and keeping them active I said yes I understand that and she said so hypothetically if you were outside with the kids and there was a fire alarm to go off and the dog was in the office you wouldn't be allowed to go back into the building to get her and I said well that's fine I give anyone permission in the office because I knew the office was full of people to pick up her lead and take her outside and she said oh no we can't guarantee that because the children are our priority And I said, that guide dog is my priority. She's my mobility aid. So you're basically just telling me that should the school go up in flames, you would consciously leave my guide dog in the building. Shortly after that, I withdrew from university. And it was, again, it was like deja vu. It really felt like I had just fallen off a cliff emotionally. I was so, so sad and depressed. I really thought I was on a roll and I could get somewhere. But this is where I started, again, doing a lot of charity work to try and throw myself into positive things, mainly because of my mum. Mum wouldn't allow me to stay in bed all day. I started a part-time job at Apple, and I would say working at Apple really saved me again because they saw something in me. They saw that I was great with customers. They saw that I had a special skill set when it came to technology. They recognised that in me. I think that's where this journey began into my career that I have now. But education, not so much fun, (laughs) in short. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing the detail of that. It sounds, some parts, incredibly frustrating and upsetting. And I really appreciate you sharing that, especially how hard it must have been to talk about it and that you're only doing that more recently. But some real high points as well. So I guess it's great to, to have the balance of those things in your memory. You mentioned your charity work at the end there, and I would would love to hear a bit more about that. We know that you're an ambassador for Sense and also that you've founded your own charity. Yeah, of course. So the Mollywood Trust was set up back in 2011. And the main reason being was when I was diagnosed, there was a real gap in support. There are some massive deafblind charities that are really great at what they do, but obviously they cover a massive umbrella of deafblind people. 
Now, Usher syndrome is arguably one of the biggest groups of deafblind people. Usher syndrome is the most common cause of congenital deafblindness. And so we're quite a big group, but we were kind of ignored within these charities because they did so much for deafblind adults and deafblind children and deafblind with additional needs, but they didn't do anything for people with Usher syndrome because our needs are very different and complex. We set up the Mollywood Trust to firstly, again, raise awareness of Usher syndrome raise awareness of what we can and can't do and fundraise for assistive technology that can make a difference to our day-to-day lives, you know, enhance our lives so that we can actually be a part of the classroom or we can be a part of a workplace or even just as simply just to give that individual the confidence to leave their house. We're not about a cure, we're about the day-to-day positive impact that we can create for those living with Russia syndrome and their families. So we've done lots of gatherings um, up and down the UK and in Scotland we get people together so a lot of people when they're diagnosed haven't met somebody else with usher syndrome and so we like to bring the families together involve everybody and just have a laugh you know a lot of the charities prey on the sympathy vote we hate that we don't want to feel sorry for anybody i don't want you to feel sorry for me i want you to think oh wow she's doing it because she can and there's no reason why it can't be the same for anybody else we can do anything with the right tools and support and that is basically the Molly Watt Trust. Set it up in 2011. We do mentoring, we communicate with many people around the world with Usher Syndrome. We, I go and personally see a few kids and teenagers with Usher Syndrome that have had some challenges again in school. Unfortunately some of the issues that I just talked about in education are not uncommon. It happens a lot and it's a real struggle because it's almost like schools just aren't ready for us, which I think is getting better. I really do. But at the same time, I'm still hearing so much negativity, which is a real shame. So I find myself often having sort of the same conversations with teenagers. What we all forget when I think about me when I was first diagnosed was I was a hormonal teenager before anything. And, you know, obviously Usher syndrome was just an extra thing that made life just all the more harder. Many of the issues I had was mainly because I couldn't go out with my friends. I couldn't be like my friends and I felt so different and I had hormonal things going on, puberty, all the rest of it. And these things I've undermined when it comes to Usher syndrome diagnosis because the diagnosis comes along and everything's about Usher syndrome. And I used to resent that so much. I remember resenting how much we talked about Usher syndrome and how much my education was about the fact that I had Usher syndrome and the fact that people wouldn't talk to me or my teachers couldn't work with me because I had Usher syndrome. Everything was about Usher syndrome. It was a pet hate and I think it prolonged my acceptance and that, you know, my denial just lasted longer because. I didn't want to accept that I was just this guinea pig that no one was really going to accept or want to work with. Those sort of feelings do still exist with a lot of our young people with Butter Syndrome. And so I make conscious effort to go and visit. There's a young girl who lives in Kent and I went round to see her mum. Her mum was particularly concerned about her. And I took Bella, my guide dog. She uses a cane and she struggled to leave the house and all similar things that I experienced at her age she was 15 at the time and I said right come on we're gonna go shopping and it was almost a bit of a surprise that I said that because it's such a normal activity for anybody else to do but for someone with us syndrome it's that much more stress but the fact that I positioned it so casually there's me with my guide dog her with her cane we were walking up and down the shops going in and out of shops I was getting her to try on things I took pictures like a catwalk 
you know, just did things normal, like a quotation marks normal, whatever that means, just to get her experiencing things that were outside the whole Usher syndrome diagnosis. You know, not everything's about Usher syndrome. Not everyone will look at you and just think, oh gosh, she got something wrong with her just because she's got a cane or just because she's got a dog. Because I spent my whole teenage years thinking about what everybody thought about me. With today's society, everything is so image obsessed and it's really hard when you have an, an invisible disability because people view you in it and you can see constant confusion because we do have a bit of vision and we will look straight back at you if you look at us. And I've seen it. Like people say to me, you know, are you training that dog? How long have you been training her for? And I was saying, well, no, she, I'm not training her. She's my guide dog. The visual surprise that I see at all times is it's just not uncommon. Going back to the charity, the charity is just all about awareness, all about fundraising for assistive tech like Apple Watches and Kindles and protective eyewear and tactile watches, all just little bits of gadgetry that can just make the simplest of things so much easier. It makes such a big difference. And of course, as you mentioned, I do so many blogs talking about these things to get more people aware of like the capabilities of these little gadgetries and how much of a big difference it actually makes to encourage people to fundraise for us so we can just help more people with Russia. So that's kind of just been an ongoing passion for myself and my family. It's only small, fair few gatherings. um, We fundraise for a fair few Apple Watches and Kindles. We have a Kindle bank, so we collect Kindles to then give to people. Something as simple as a Kindle, which isn't all that expensive really helped me access my materials in GCSEs. I couldn't access textbooks, but to be able to access on my Kindle, where I could enlarge the text, change the contrast, it made life so much easier. I didn't have to worry about relying on someone to modify my materials. I could do that myself. And it gives the person a great sense of independence and accessibility. That is the main thing. The accessibility, the independence and the inclusion is priceless. That's really what the charity are trying to do. They're trying to give that to more and more people. I kind of use my experiences to to help everybody. And that's what the trust is ultimately about. That's fantastic. You mentioned there lots of gadgetry and, you know, small things, as you said, that can be so helpful, particularly Apple and Apple are known for being particularly good at that stuff. We saw that you went on a very exciting visit years ago to their headquarters in Cupertino. And I was just dying to ask you, what's the infinite loop like? Well, that trip came by major surprise. As I just mentioned, I blog a lot. And I blogged about the Apple Watch when it first came out. And the Apple Watch blog went viral. And one of the reasons it went viral was because Philip Schiller, the chief executive officer of something at Apple, Cupertino HQ, retweeted the blog and my website crashed. (laughs) I had to upgrade the traffic space and, you know, and the hits just kept rising and it was crazy. But as a result of that blog, I got in touch with the, the accessibility team at Apple and I went across there and met them. I met the team and I saw the campus. Mind you, it's not, obviously, like you said, it was a few years ago, so I haven't seen the new one, hopefully soon. The canteen was amazing. The team were great. They were all so typical Apple, you know, very friendly and welcoming. Everything's so positive. And they asked me a few things. And it really felt quite surreal just walking around the campus and sort of thinking, wow, like this is where the magic happens. 
Apple did something right when they designed the products to make it not only just accessible, but just so easy and usable. And I think that's what in turn makes the products very accessible. The fact that the usability of them are very straightforward, which is easy for anyone to access, let alone people with disabilities. By blogging and and using Twitter and networking, I was able to go over there and meet them and just have some really cool conversations with important people. They really enjoyed meeting me too. They really felt that meeting me made a difference to, to them as well, which was quite humbling. And it was really there where I was inspired to go self-employed because I would have liked to have created a career within Apple whilst I was working there. However, it proved to be quite difficult. Even though I mentioned it when I was in Cupertino, I said, you know, I'd really like to make a career out of this. You know, accessibility, tech, Apple, they're all such a big part of my life. So it is my life. I really feel that I could take this so far. Yeah, we understand what you're saying, blah, 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 but that, that was kind of it. And so when I came home shortly after that, I handed in my notice, my part-time job that I had at the time. Obviously, bearing in mind I'd been at university, I didn't really have much direction. I was on a bit of a low. But this visit inspired me, I think. And I got back and I thought, no, I'm going to try and do this and gain opportunities to work with a lot of companies and try and achieve what I'm cut out for to deliver presentations talking about the importance of accessibility and inclusive design and how we can create like an all-inclusive society. We know, we're very much aware that we live in a very diverse, built planet. Everything should go into that like accordingly. So if we can be more inclusive, we can be more diverse, we can be more accessible. I think they all just work hand in hand really nicely. So thankfully, I've been able to do that. In the last few years being self-employed, I've been able to do that. And I've come across amazing companies that have got similar goals. A lot of the work that I do at Sigma have really, really helped push that vision also. The Apple experience is definitely something that (laughs) I hold very close to heart. Absolutely fascinating. I can't believe that just one blog post got you an awesome trip to the States. That's so cool. And that it crashed your website as well. (laughs) It must have been a huge amount of traffic. So, uh, well, well done for getting it back up and running. I mean, at least it did some load testing for you. Yeah, thank you. So speaking of blog posts, we saw out of your many, you've also been featured on the Government Digital Service blog series, Accessibility in Me. And you were talking in that about some of your tips and advice for people working on digital products like designers and developers. Could you share a couple of top tips for our listeners? I often get asked for like tips and it's quite hard to know where to start with them. But I think ultimately, a lot of it starts with awareness, like who are you actually building this for? and actually. When we talk about accessibility, it is not just about building for minority groups. People need to stop associating accessibility with disability. Think about accessibility more like inclusion, because if we're designing inclusively, not only is our product accessible and usable, we are including everybody and not leaving anybody behind. And that's including, you know, our aging population and the technophobes and all of that, just by involving everybody. It's just so important and would go so far. And that's a real problem that I've come across is that people are still sitting on the stereotype when it comes to accessibility, especially in design, because you have the four different categories. You have vision, you have hearing, you have cognitive and you have motor. And of course, people associate each of those things with certain disabilities and they don't sort of think about the grey areas in between. I talk a lot about the grey areas because 
I fit perfectly inside a grey area. No one fits in the box where people think deaf people need captions and BSL sign language, or if they're blind, they need screen readers. Well, actually, that's not the case. I am registered blind, I have five degrees vision, and I do not rely on screen readers. I actually rely on magnifiers and colour filters and more visual accessibility features. And that always comes as a real shock because people associate being blind with being able to see absolutely nothing. So if a designer thinks that, they will just think that by making their website fully compatible with all screen readers, it's fully accessible to all blind people, when actually it's not. You're cutting out a big group of blind people that still have some vision left. That's a big chunk of blind people. Like There's only very little group of blind people amongst the whole blind community that see nothing at all. And the worst you can be is see light and dark. All the others have got some kind of useful vision and are told to use it as much as they can using assistive technology, using tools that are available because they are. But as soon as they use these tools to access anything on the web, you're then hit by a brick wall when a website isn't designed to be compatible with these tools, with these assistive technologies. Ultimately, my top tip would be to be aware of this to be open-minded, to venture into the grey areas, to not associate accessibility with the stereotypes, to actually educate yourselves on who you would be benefiting by addressing accessibility and design. Ultimately, building an all-inclusive experience. Accessibility works hand-in-hand with that. That completely makes sense. And as someone who works in a digital team and and leads team members who are considering that stuff on a day-to-day basis, That's just fantastic advice. And it really isn't one size fits all, even for people that do use screen readers, you know, everyone will have different needs and use things in different ways. Always a good thing to come back to. Thank you. Exactly. To move on to current things and what you're up to these days. I know that since the beginning of this year, you've been working with the awesome people at Sigma and one of my favorite people of all time, Hillary. So can you tell us a bit about how it's going and what's been some of your highlights so far? Yeah, so Sigma have been great. I've actually known them for a few years now. And it's amazing, like we started the relationship, funny enough, after that Apple Watch that I, (laughs) Apple Watch blog I just spoke about. It was the Apple Watch blog that got Sigma in touch with me. And they asked me to be the, the closing keynote speaker at their Camp Digital event a few years ago. I think it was four years ago now. And that kind of started a real relationship with them because, again, like I say, they had similar goals and vision in mind. And I really like everything that they work hard towards. Like you say, Hillary's great. The whole team is great. I've just fitted in really well. Although I work from home, I do my couple of days a week with them. And there's been so much great project work, which hasn't been easy. You know, getting the work has been tricky in some parts because not every company will prioritize thinking inclusively or designing for accessibility. And it it can be really quite disheartening because you sort of think, Well, actually, if you put this at the forefront of your mind, it would do wonders for your business. You would reach so many more people. You'd be benefiting so many more than you realize. And this is where us at Sigma really try to push and sort of get into the door. I'm really passionate about digital health. I've been working on a campaign with that, trying to get heard, trying to talk about the digitalization and how it can make a positive impact on lives, which is really, really great. 
So a lot of the project work that I've been doing recently, so this year, the UX team and I have been rolling out these accessibility and inclusive design workshops. Part one is presentation bit about my story and why I am so passionate about accessibility. I bring along some simulation goggles and Chris brings along gloves and we bring a load of kit <laughs> that we have shipped around the country. We've been really quite busy with it. We often find by the afternoon when we've done more interactive stuff and we've got people using screen readers and we've got people looking at how I use my tech with all the different accessibility features that many of them are never aware of and they all exist in all of our smartphones. So when we get them using their own devices and we show them how to turn these features on and off so they can go away and test these things out online. So whether it be on their own websites or their own app or whatever service they provide, they can actually take on board some of the things that we show them in order to, to then design a better experience. It's giving them that bit of empathy and awareness. Once again, the awareness, I keep banging on about awareness, but I think ultimately it does come down to that a lot of the time. The afternoon session, we tend to get across to sort of solutions and technical tips. So a lot of the time, there'll be front end developers that want to know sort of, okay, this isn't right, but how can we fix it? And that's kind of where we, we're able to deliver. And it's always really quite exciting because then we know that after they've seen us, they're going to make a genuine difference and it's going to help so many people. Yeah, so that's a lot of the work that we've been doing is kind of really trying to push that. And we do a lot of audits, like accessibility audits, kind of just looking online and finding errors and trying to sort of advise on where we can improve that. You know, not necessarily just slating everybody for creating bad experiences. We want to, we don't want to do that. We, we want to work with people to create better experiences online. And that's, that's what we're about. And that Sigma just works really well because we're all very passionate about what we do. That's fantastic. Talking about it in such a positive way like that, that will, as I'm sure you find, reduce people's concerns about engaging in accessibility reviews and things, because quite a lot of what you see online is people slating companies or websites for doing things badly. And I'm sure in many cases, it's completely dried, but it probably does present a bit of that barrier to entry, I guess, for people being invested in doing it. It's really hard for myself because there are so many experiences that I have that can really cause a lot of emotional distress and it's hard not to go online and sort of slate these businesses because it is frustrating. Like I got asked the other day, you know, are you as a disabled person who clearly experienced a lot of sort of bad experiences online or services in general, do you find you have quite a high tolerance because of that? And I said, well, the thing is, ultimately, we are just another customer. And if you give us a bad experience, we're just going to move on to the next business or the next shop, the next service, and then you've lost out. Yes, I have a tolerance for it. But actually, when you experience it so much, it's so hard not to shout out about it and be like, why isn't this different? A lot of the experiences I've had would have been easily avoided had they have had basic awareness training. I will say, admittedly, I have done it. And lots of people with disabilities have done it not just necessarily people with disabilities, but all different kinds of culture, our LGBT community, like there's so many bad experiences had by them. It's hard not to shout about it because if you don't, you're not noticed. So it's kind of finding that happy medium and that's where Sigma fit quite well because we want to actually just work with the people to create better experiences rather than being like, right, this is really bad. Let's just give them bad publicity everywhere. <laughs> which you know is easier said than done 
I can imagine. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, and I would personally recommend Sigma and the work that they do for that stuff because it's really good. Quick detour before we get on to some recommendations from you. In our research, one of the best things that I found out was that you've done a couple of skydives. What was that about and what was it like? I wanted to do something for the charity, for the Mollywood Trust. My dad is an avid doing crazy things for charity sort of guy. Like that's his way of supporting people with Usher syndrome. He loved doing, you know, these crazy long walks and mountain things. I decided I wanted to do a challenge and of course I wanted to do for the charity. And I might just mention that Chris from um, Sigma joined me in on one of these skydives also. And he also fundraised for the Molly Watch House, which was really, really great. He was amazing. I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, I have to admit. As soon as I said to the guys, you know, by the way, I am deaf blind and I will be taking my hearing aids out for this because I can't afford to lose my hearing aid. They did look a bit startled and a bit concerned, <laughs> but it was amazing. And, they, and we just basically came up with a system because you're, of course, sort of attached to a guy and they give you sort of hand signals and stuff, which immediately I had to let them know I don't have peripheral vision. So don't be waving around in my peripherals because I won't know that you've waved and that could go very horribly wrong. So we just had a little system where they just sort of touched my shoulders and we landed very safely. And of course, they did it again <laughs> because I really enjoyed it. I mean, my ears popped and my ears were quite sore by the time I landed, but it was surreal just seeing everything just spiraling around in the sky. I was quite a daredevil. I got him to spin me around a few times. That was fun. It's just one of those things. It was on my list of things to do. I think having a progressive condition that could potentially get worse, I could go completely blind one day. It's unknown. I'm all about making memories, creating these kind of experiences that I'm always going to remember. That sort of thing is really important to me. I would say to anyone out there who is thinking about it, I would certainly recommend it. It's an, it's an irreplaceable experience. Nothing else like it. What you get to see from up there is just amazing. How incredible. So you heard it here first, One Team Gov listeners. If you've ever been thinking about doing a skydive, then take Molly's advice and go for it because it sounds incredible. I'll take that up myself hopefully one day. Oh, it. <laughs> We're coming to the end of our lovely chat with you, Molly. And we've got a couple of recommendations that we'd love for you to share with our listeners. Can you recommend a podcast that our listeners should tune into? The one that springs to mind right away is Tech for Good Live. They tend to, I mean, as states in the title of them, looking at tech and digital with a positive social impact. I was once on a podcast with them over in Copenhagen and also at one of our Camp Digital events at Sigma host once a year. I just really like all the different chats and diverse views that come about and it really does get you thinking. That would be one that I would certainly recommend. Brilliant. We'll check them out. And how about a Twitter account we should follow? Besides my own? (laughs) Of course, yes. (laughs) So there's me, which is Molly Watt, W-A-T-T, Talks. So T-A-L-K-S. I do a lot of tweeting. I feel very (laughs) big-headed. Talking about my own. We also have a Molly Watt Trust Twitter, which is Molly Watt Trust. We're always very grateful for any support. That's another one. (laughs) But I think like as soon as you hashtag accessibility or hashtag AXS chat, access chat, they do some really interesting interviews and talks every Tuesday. 
when you look up the hashtag and it comes up with questions and answers from all different people within the community that kind of work or are passionate about accessibility and technology it's always worth looking at them because you see a lot of really really interesting stuff all things accessibility and inclusion brilliant that's a definitely a good shout to follow a hashtag rather than just one account so you can get loads more information so how about a book you've read recently that you could recommend books that i read aren't actually anything to do with what i do <laughs> is that okay That's absolutely fine. In fact, it's almost better. (laughs) Well, I love a Sydney Sheldon book. I love a bit of crime, a bit of romance, all the rest of it. I really love strong female characters. So Sydney Sheldon never fails. Absolutely. Plus one to that. And finally, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but what about a charity we should support? (laughs) Uh, The Molly Watt Trust. We're only small. And as I just mentioned, we'd be grateful for any added support, whether it just be our follow on Twitter, a couple of retweets here and there, or any shares of our blogs. I get lots of people with us blogging also, but we would appreciate any kind of support. That'd be amazing. Definitely. You've got the One Team Gov community behind you. Thank you. So listen, Molly, thank you so much for chatting to us. It was really fascinating to hear about your journey and everything that inspired you to get to where you are now and couldn't admire you more for your perseverance through all of that. So well done. Hope to run into you at an event soon. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for having me, Kylie. Thank you. Speak to you soon. And that's it from the One Team Gov Show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.